It's finally here. Well, actually not here. It's on the EM Cases website. Yes, the EM Cases Quiz Vault is live. This is kind of the pot of the gold at the end of the EM Cases learning system rainbow. What's the EM Cases learning system? Well, the best learning theory of the day suggests that space repetitive multimodal learning capped off with test enhanced learning is the best way to permanently etch info into your huge brain. So what does that mean? It means that your best chance of making new knowledge stick is to actively listen to the podcast, then a little while later read the Just for Nuggets emails and the written summary show notes, then watch the rapid reviews video, and then take the quiz in the Quiz Vault. So details of the Quiz Vault. The Quiz Vault is 800 questions big now and will soon be 1,000 and growing with each new episode release. You can access the Quiz Vault on the navigation bar in the EM Cases homepage or at the bottom of any of the show notes on the website for a particular episode. You only need to sign in once and then the Quiz Vault will track your scores compared to the community and keep track of which questions you've answered. You can custom build a quiz with any number of questions you want by medical category, like let's say you want to review pediatric EM before you do your pediatric EM rotation, or if you work in a hospital that doesn't see peds all that often, you need to brush up. It's easy to custom build a quiz with just a couple of clicks that will include only pediatric questions. If you need to brush up on trauma, same thing. We've kept it simple and easy to use, and of course, like all EM cases online offerings, it's 100% free. But of course, We want it to be the best that it can be, so please do give us your feedback. Once we've collected feedback from lots of users like you, we'll make adjustments to the Quiz Vault so that it's even more awesome. Just email me directly at anton at emergencymedicinecases.com with any suggestions for improvement. Now on to EM drugs that work and drugs that don't work with Justin Morgenstern and Joel Lexgen. This time around, we're going to do something a little bit different. Rather than dive deep into one particular EM topic, we're going to talk about a broad range of topics, but with a common theme. Are the drugs we use in the ED for common ailments effective? See, if you ask a patient who suffers from a substance misuse disorder which drugs work for them and which don't, you'll get an extremely detailed, in-depth account. But ask an emergency physician which medications they administer actually work and which are ineffective based on the current literature, good luck getting a clear answer. Medicine's dirty secret is that for a startling number of medications, we just don't know. And it isn't just the medications you're thinking, those that are unethical to withhold in order to effectively study them. Today's list might surprise some of you, and I suspect that by the end of this episode, you might find that a few of these meds are your ED workhorses. You've maybe even relied on a few in your last couple of shifts. So today, we're coming out with the trademark pending first iteration of the EM cases, drugs that work and drugs that don't list. Needless to say, this list isn't all encompassing, but it's a good place to start. We're going to break down the drugs into analgesics, antiemetics, drugs for vertigo, and true emergency drugs. And to help us hone our drug choice skills, we've got a guest expert who's new to EM cases, Dr. Joel Lexgen. Dr. Lexgen, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your professional background? Sure. Thanks for doing this. This is an area 
that I've been interested in for a long time. So I started doing emergency way back in 1982. I've been interested in drug issues for about 30 years. And in fact, in 2000, I was the author of the CAPE Manual on Drugs for Emergency Medicine. And this booklet went through about 130 different conditions that emergency physicians would treat, and it listed first and second line drugs for each of those conditions, dosages that should be used, and also gave the cost of a course of treatment, which is something really that doctors are by and large pretty ignorant about. And uh, a familiar voice to you all, the one and only First 10 EM, Dr. Justin Morgenstern. Justin's actually down in New Zealand now. Justin, great to have you back on the main episode podcast. It's always a pleasure to get a chance to chat with you, Anton. All right, guys. So we'll get into the drugs that work and those that don't in a minute. But before we do, I think it's important to discuss some key concepts to help clinicians decide for themselves whether or not a drug works. And those concepts are risk of bias in medication trials, the underreporting of harms in these trials, lack of replication of findings, and how to interpret p-values. Now, just bear with us here. We're not going to bore you with a class on statistics. We're just going to highlight some absolutely necessary things to understand so that you can make informed decisions for yourself. So, uh, Dr. Lexton, let's start with the risks of bias in these drug trials. What are the risks of bias in the trials when it comes to figuring out whether a drug works or not? So, there are many risks of bias, and you're going to hear my biases in this. And one of the main ones is industry funding of clinical research. And we have to remember that when drugs come on the market, all of the trials that have been done on them are in, been funded by industry. And once drugs go off patent, virtually nobody does any further research on them because there's no money to be made because they're being sold by generic companies. So a brand name company isn't going to fund research. So I was a participant in a Cochrane review that was published in 2017. And what we did, this was really a meta-analysis of meta-analyses. We looked at meta-analyses of clinical trials and who funded the various clinical trials. And what we found was that if industry funded the clinical trials, that they had a much higher chance of showing positive results and positive conclusions compared to whether to any other source of funding, be that government funding agencies, charities, hospitals, etc. And what applies to who funds the clinical trials also applies to the principal investigator in those trials. So if the principal investigator has a financial relationship with the company that's funding the trials, the relative risk of a positive result is about three. So one of the things that I, I do when I'm looking at the literature is I look and see who's paid for it and what are the conflicts of interest 
of the people who are running the trial. That doesn't mean that I disregard the the evidence of the trial, but it certainly does mean that I'm somewhat skeptical. Yeah, I think that's such an important point, and it's hard to know with what to do with those financial biases aside from, I think, in a utopia, we just would try to eliminate them altogether. B- backing right up, as, as somebody who reads papers all the time, bias, you know, j- just to define it, is just anything that makes a test unfair, right? And the problem is, I, I, I encourage most of our readers just to pick up a paper once in a while and read it. And a lot of the biases are obvious. Just ask yourself, does this seem like a fair test? Unfortunately, what, what you're getting at is if, if you have a vested interest in a trial, there are some really subtle ways that you can bias a trial or, or skew a, a trial. And so that's one of, one of the reasons that I recommend if you really want to know and, and you're reading a trial, I recommend using a checklist at some point. Our friend Ken Milne over at the SGEM or uh, there's the Best Evidence in Emergency Medicine course out of McMaster. They, they have free checklists that just help you run through a trial and make sure you've identified all the subtle sources of bias that you can. One other source of bias which we need to take into account is that we often do things because somebody else told us that they do it. And why are they using a particular drug? Because somebody told them to use it. So when I started emergency way back in the early 80s, we were using a lot of meperidine, Demerol, which later became pretty obvious that we shouldn't have been using it. And why were we? Because that's what everybody else did. Absolutely. Also, just to be clear for the listeners there, none of us on this podcast have any financial conflicts of interest related to any drugs that we're going to talk about. And I'm proud to say that EM Cases has a very strict conflict of interest policy, actually that Dr. Lexgen was consulted on to and helped develop. Um, and you can check out that conflict of interest policy on the EM Cases website. All right. So conflicts of interest are really important. Let's talk about the potential nasty effects of the drugs we use in general. So, Dr. Morgenstern, why is it that harms are almost always underrepresented in trials? And why is this important to understand this underreporting of harms when it comes to choosing drugs in the ED? Yes. So there's actually two things that I really want to say about harms. And and I'll tell you, I didn't really understand either of them when I started reading papers for myself. So the first, as you say, is that research really does tend to underestimate harms. And this happens for a number of reasons. It's really expensive to look for harms. So the truth is sometimes researchers just don't bother looking. Sometimes harms can happen months to even years later. You know, think about heavy metal poisoning from a hip replacement. You know, by then the study's well over. Sometimes researchers don't want to see the harm in their data, so they'll do something called like a run-in period. So they give everybody the drug for a few weeks, and then anybody who had any side effects was just excluded from the trial. And then maybe the biggest issue is just that some of the really important harms are actually rare events, and so trials just simply aren't powered to find them. You're unlikely to see a case of Stevens-Johnson's or Torsade de Point in a you know a hundred-person trial, but it really only takes a single cardiac ar- arrest to completely outweigh all of the benefits that we're going to talk about in basically everything today. So, you know, a a, a 2 out of 10 decrease in the score of nausea is nothing as compared to some of these rare but really important events. So a general rule from that is whenever I'm looking at research, I try to keep in my mind that harm is being underestimated. But there was one other thing I I think is really important that has become more and more obvious to me uh, about harm. You know, in general, and there are a few exceptions to this, but in general, harm is pretty static whereas benefit is relative. And I think this is a really important concept. So if I give 
drug X to a hundred people, I can sort of expect three of them to have an adverse event, no matter what, what I use, you know, not three out of a hundred, it's not the number, but no matter what population I use that in the same number of people are likely to be harmed. But the benefit of that drug will depend a lot on how sick those patients were to begin with. So if we're talking about a sick septic shock patient with a 50% mortality, you know, if if they have a 20% relative reduction, you know, I might help 10 people and only harm three. But if I start using this drug on healthier and healthier patients, what we call indication creep, now I use the drug on somebody with, you know, mild influenza who only had a negligible mortality to begin with. Now we run into problems because now that patient still has a three in a hundred chance of harm, but now the harms outweigh the benefits because the benefits have crept way, way down. And, and I think that's really important to understand because a drug that might be really helpful in one group of patients might actually be harmful in a different group of patients, especially if they're lower risk to start with. I love that concept that harm is static and benefit is relative depending on the population. Dr. Lexton, anything to add uh, in terms of uh, harms and underreporting harms? Well, the only thing that I would point out, uh, by the way, I agree with everything that Justin said. Um, The only thing that I would point out is that when drugs are being studied before they come on the market, they're studied in relatively homogeneous populations which typically means middle-aged men and women, more likely men than women, who have a clear-cut diagnosis and probably aren't taking very many other drugs. But when they hit the market and we're using them in the emergency, we may be using them in groups of people who were not studied. So we really have no idea either the benefits or the harms that these people are going to get from these medications. Yeah. I mean, so many of those cardiac drugs that we use, the exclusion criteria are, you know, anyone over the age of 70 or 75. We so often use these drugs in, you know, 90, 95 year olds that they've never really been tested. Um, And of course your harms are going to be a lot higher in those patients. All right, so we've covered bias and underreporting of harms. The next key concept that we need to understand is lack of replication of study results. And we see this all the time. A drug squeaks by in one trial and the FDA suddenly approves it immediately. Dr. Lexton, why is there a lack of replication of many drug study findings? And why is this fact important in choosing ED drugs? One of the reasons, and I think we'll get into this a little more when we talk about p-values, is that we're, I think we're fetishizing p-values. So if it's p.04, then we regard this as meaning the drug works. And if it's p.06, then the drug doesn't work, when in fact, those study results may be virtually identical. And studies vary for a variety of reasons. So they range from what's the design of the study. Two studies are never exactly the same. You use slightly different population groups. You use larger or smaller population groups. The inclusion-exclusion criteria change. The way you analyze your results change. Sometimes you switch from publishing your primary outcomes to your secondary outcomes. Sometimes during the course of the trial, you add new outcomes. 
So you get this diversity of results because people change the way that they're doing things. And sometimes they change them for very valid reasons. And sometimes they change them because they want to get a particular outcome and they bias the way that they're doing things in order to get that outcome. There's a quite well-known person, at least in this literature, who's talked a lot about this. And his name is um, John Ionanides. And he's got a quite well-known paper that was published in PLOS Medicine in 2009 called Why Most Published Research Findings Are False. And he estimates that I think about 80% of what's published is not true. I think there's clearly multiple contributors here. I, I want to point my fingers at the giant financial impact that makes us stop research. But I'll tell you the truth. I think a lot of it just has to do with a fundamental optimistic nature we, we take in medicine, which you know I think we need to some extent. But what it means is as soon as we see a positive uh, trial, everybody gets super excited and thinks that we're going to, to really help our patients. If we see a negative trial, our optimistic nature means that we keep trying and keep trying and keep trying. And so you'll see that with you know the most recent stroke literature with the retrieval devices. We had negative trial after negative trial after negative trial, and then you get one positive trial and they completely stop research. They just shut it down all the other active going trials for exactly that reason. We're a little bit too optimistic and we don't understand the importance of replication in, in, in science. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about how important that is as we go through some of the topics, probably. Some of these seams will definitely rear their ugly heads while we're talking about the actual drugs. Just another example of where research sort of stopped was sometime in the mid to late 90s, the use of steroids for spinal cord injuries you got this one positive study, and everybody jumped on that. Although in reanalyzing the literature, it doesn't look like steroids are of any benefit in spinal cord injury. But it took years for people to to start looking at that particular study again and looking at its faults. Yeah, that's a great example. All right, so that's uh, the problem with lack of replication of trials. The last concept to hash out before we dive into the list of drugs has to do with p-values. So we need to sort of geek out a little bit on p-values here. Dr. Lexton, you had you had mentioned that suddenly when you hit a certain threshold of p-value, we say that a drug doesn't work or it does work based on that threshold. Justin, this is a tall order, but uh, impress us with something fascinating about p-values and statistical significance that'll change the way we think about the drugs we use. Yeah, please don't turn off the podcast right now. It's just a short segment on p-values. P <laughs> I, I think, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. I don't think it's that bad. Now, the p-value is a bit of a powder keg. I'll tell you, there are some very smart people out there who thinks that we should get rid of the p-value altogether. Now, I don't agree with that in, entirely, but I think it's really important to know that there are a lot of strong opinions out there and a lot of misunderstandings. For our purposes, I think it's a lot less important to know exactly what the p-value means and more important to know about the errors or what it doesn't mean. And perhaps the most important thing to know about the p-value is that it has absolutely nothing to do with whether the results of a study are true. 
nothing at all. It's just a statistical test to see how unlikely the results that you're seeing are if you assume a, a null hypothesis. And I know that always sounds a little bit confusing, that whole null, null hypothesis thing. So let's just use an example. So Anton, let's say you and I ran a race. In fact, we run it 10 times and you won seven times. Now, does that mean that you're a faster runner than I am? Or did you just happen to, uh, to win a couple extra times by chance alone? So the peak value tells us how unlikely it is for you to win seven races if we assume that we're both equal, if we assume that we both should have won five. But that also tells us why the p-value is sort of irrelevant because we don't actually care. What we actually care about is what's going to happen in the future. If we're going to race again tomorrow, who should I put my money on? Who should I bet on? And what the p-value doesn't tell us is, was this a fair trial? What if you were running downhill and I was running uphill? Or I had to wear, carry a 50-pound weight? The p-value doesn't tell us about that. You have to read the trial and think about the biases and that any way that the test could be unfair. You know, What if you're a better runner than I am? in the research facility, but when, when nobody's watching, but if we go into a stadium with 50,000 spectators, you freeze up, you know, that's external valid validity. That's why we have to run the trial in different settings. You know, what if on the day that we raced, I happened to be sick. This is why we have to repeat the trial a few times to make sure that you actually were better. This is why replication really, really matters. And this is all, you know, relatively simple in my example. We're just trying to figure out who's better, you know, you or me. But in medicine, we're trying to use those results to predict the future results in completely different populations. Just because Anton is faster than Justin doesn't mean that every Hellman is faster than every Morgenstern. So I do think the p-value is important because without it, I can't tell you if the fact that you won seven races means anything, whether it's signal or noise, but it's a tiny part of understanding the literature. The guy who invented the p-value said that it is a measure to identify data worthy of a second look. In other words, a positive trial with a p-value less than 0.05 doesn't mean that it's true. It means that the data is interesting and we should consider running some more trials. What a great analogy. I love that. We'll have to run a race soon there, Justin. (laughs) No, I don't want anybody to see that. (laughs) We also need to remember, of course, that statistical significance doesn't translate necessarily into clinical significance. Oh, yeah. So, So, Joel, can you dive a little bit deeper into that? So that's a key concept, the difference between statistical and clinical significance. So what, why is that important when we're reading these trials? So if you get a large enough sample size, even small differences can be statistically significant. So let's suppose that there's a new drug for the common cold. And without treatment, the common cold lasts for seven days. You get this new drug coming on the market. You enroll 10,000 people, and it turns out that with this new drug, instead of seven days, your cold will get better in six and three quarter days. So that difference may well be statistically significant, but does the six hours difference in practice mean anything? Probably not. And I wouldn't prescribe that drug because the clinical value of it is marginal. But as Justin was saying, it's going to have side effects. Now that we've gone through all these problems, it's going to be uh, pretty challenging going through the drugs we use to figure out which ones actually work and which ones don't. You know, we could spend 
hours just on one drug for one indication, but we're going to try and get to some bottom lines with a whole slew of drugs. And I'd like to go through probably some of the most common drugs that we use first, and those are analgesics. Now, while the opioid crisis is still raging, I, I think we do have a responsibility to prescribe analgesics responsibly, while at the same time, we should be controlling pain adequately in the ED. So we're going to cover a range of commonly used analgesics, some that work and some that don't, for a range of pain syndromes. So we're going to talk about gabapentin for low back pain and sciatica. We'll talk about NSAIDs for low back pain, oral NSAIDs versus topical NSAIDs for things like sprains and strains, uh, cyclobrenzaprine, caffeine as an adjunct to analgesics. Uh, we'll talk about codeine, steroids for sore throat, nifedipine for hemorrhoids and anal fissures, and buscopan for abdominal pain. So we're going to go through all of these different medications and try and come up with a bottom line for each of them. So let's start with anticonvulsants for mechanical low back pain and sciatica. These are conditions that we see so often in the emergency department and are usually a little bit frustrating to manage for us and for the patients. So let's specifically talk about gabapentin, uh, which I see used all the time. Dr. Morgenstern, is there any good evidence out there for the effectiveness of oral gabapentin in decreasing pain scores or resolution of symptoms in patients with mechanical low back pain or sciatica? Wow. So we're going to start out with a really difficult one. And, and honestly, I'll tell you right at the front, I think the best answer that I'm going to give you is I don't know. And, and I think no matter what I say right now, some people are going to be upset. This is a topic where we know we were purposely fooled by the drug companies. There have been multiple lawsuits over this, and it's now very clear that the drug companies purposely hid data. So the original studies made it look like it worked, although it was never a wonder drug. But now that we've seen more hidden data, the benefit is more and more questionable. So for back pain in particular, there was a big meta-analysis done in the CMAJ in 2018, and they clearly found no benefit with gabapentin or, or Lyrica. The only difference was a clear increase in adverse events with the gabapentinoids. Now, I'll tell you, there's a lot of issues with this data. Of the nine trials in that meta-analysis, only four actually looked at sciatica. The rest of them had no leg symptoms. So there's no real reason to think that gabapentin would work in the first place. Uh, but even in the sciatica trials, there, there was no benefit. My bigger issue might be with the outcome that they choose. Most of these trials are looking at pain something like three months or sometimes even six months later. But I really don't expect my treatment to help at three months, right? By three months, patients are either better or they've identified themselves as a more severe refractory back pain. What I'm really trying to do in the emergency department is get my patients through a few weeks and help them get to back to, uh, back to work earlier. And none of these studies looked at that at all, which is why I started by saying, you know what? We really don't know. Now, I know that's not super helpful. So I think it's worthwhile saying a few things that we really do know about gabapentin. First, we know that there are a lot of adverse events. About 80% of people will, will describe some kind of adverse event with uh, gabapentin, although most are minor. One in six patients will have side effects bad enough to stop the drug. So a number needed to harm around six. Also, these drugs are drugs of abuse. They are synergistic with opioids and, and they are abused. There are only two conditions that I could find out there in the literature at all that have any evidence of benefits. And there's a lot of bias in those trials, but for post-herpetic neuralgia and for diabetic neuropathy, there is a little bit of evidence. And in those trials, you'll see a, a fall of one out of 10 on a pain score in one out of eight patients. So a number needed to treat of eight, a number needed to harm of 
six. So on the face of it, that really sounds like that we should absolutely never use them. But there is one other thing that we, I think we need to consider, which makes this more complicated. The harms are qualitatively different than the benefits, than the, than the pain. You know, you're trading pain for something like somnolence or nausea. And I think this is where evidence-based medicine becomes interesting. This is where there may be some role for clinical judgment and patient preference. I'd be very interested to hear what Joel said. I think there's one other thing that is is really uh, interesting to, to note. These drugs were really heavily marketed as if you should ramp the dose up, but actually every trial that I could find that compared low doses to high doses, there is no difference in pain control. You just see more adverse events. So if you were going to try it in a very rare patient who has clear neuropathic pain, you have to warn them there's an 80% chance of side effects, but you should be absolutely using the absolute lowest dose and you'll know in three days whether they work or not. So an absolute lowest dose for the absolute lowest time, but after I read through that evidence, I'm not really sure that we should be using them at all. Yeah, I, I found that there's so many studies with gabapentin and Lyrica on non-neuropathic pain, and a lot of the patients are mixed together with the patients that do have neuropathic pain, and so it was hard to really be able to come to any conclusions. You know, I, I think we can probably all agree that you should definitely not be using gabapentin for pain that is not neuropathic. So that's the first thing. Um, and again, like you said, start low, go slow. And it really, I think, comes down to patient preference, whether they're willing to trade some side effects for maybe a small decrease in pain. Uh, Dr. Lexgen, what's your take on gabapentin for low back pain and sciatica? I don't use it. And in fact, there was a recent overview of off-label uses for the gabapentinoids. Um, this was came out in JAMA Internal Medicine at the end of March. And they looked at the literature for the off-label uses of these drugs. And by and large, what they said was there's no good evidence for almost all of the off-label uses. And where there has been some evidence based on placebo-controlled trials, the evidence is that they provide any benefits is really modest, and it's also inconsistent. So I'm not saying don't use drugs off-label ever, but by and large, if the evidence isn't good for off-label use, drugs are going to cause more harms than provide benefit. Stick to neuropathic pain, and as Justin said, start low and go slow, and if they're not working, tell the patients if they're not working within a relatively short period of time to give up on them before they um, have the side effects. Yeah. My, my very practical advice, I, I think this is a class of drugs that I will completely stop using if we see some more research, but because nobody's done the trial that I want, if somebody very clearly has neuropathic pain, I will give them the lowest dose of gabapentin for three days and tell them at that point, they will see all the effect that they, they should have. And they can decide if they want to talk to their GP to go any longer. Uh, and I cancel them a lot about the, the side effects, but I, I have to say it's a rare patient. Once once every four or five months where I'm actually writing that prescription and only for a few days, only at the lowest dose. All right. Sounds perfectly reasonable. I guess the bottom line there is that there are, I think, jurisdictions around North America that are using a lot of gabapentin. I think maybe the listeners out there after listening to this might want to just kind of rethink how much they use it. 
where it might be reasonable in the rare patient, uh, we shouldn't be giving it to everyone with sciatica. That's for sure. Let's move on from gabapentinoids that probably don't work very well to some drugs that have some pretty good evidence that they do work pretty well, and that is uh, NSAIDs and acetaminophen for low back pain. Uh, So, Dr. Lexton, what is the evidence out there for the use of NSAIDs and acetaminophen in the patient with acute mechanical low back pain? So, here I'm drawing on a um, Cochrane review that came out in 2008, and they gathered 65 trials, over 11,000 patients in total, and almost half of them were rated as high quality. So that's pretty good to begin with. And what they found was, compared to placebo, that you had benefits from them But the benefits also were accompanied by significantly more side effects, the kinds of things that we would expect from NSAIDs, so primarily GI side effects. And if we choose the wrong NSAID, possibly cardiac side effects. So the benefits are there. The um, effect sizes, however, are not great. So we have to remember that these are not going to get people pain-free within a week or two weeks of using them. They will make them somewhat more comfortable, and we also have to be cautious about what other conditions these patients, our patients may have in choosing which NSAID to use. So if we're not using the COX-2s, then in terms of decreased cardiac risk, naproxen is the best one. And if we're worried about GI side effects, it's ibuprofen. I think there's two important points there. One is, uh, you know, the, just the discharge instructions for a patient with mechanical low back pain. I think it's really important to explain to the patient that uh, it's a mechanical problem, requires a mechanical solution, that medications aren't going to take away their complete their pain completely uh, because a lot of patients do expect that we give them a drug and that'll fix their problem. Um, So I think patient expectations are really important there. Um, And the the second point there was the the difference between different NSAIDs in terms of side effects. So I want to dig a little bit deeper into that. You had mentioned that ibuprofen uh, may have less GI side effects than the other medications. Um, and you had mentioned naproxen may have less cardiac side effects than the other NSAIDs. Then there was, you know, there was a huge pharmaceutical company push for the COX-2 NSAIDs, which of course are more expensive, claiming that they had less GI side effects. And there's so many NSAIDs to choose from. Dr. Morgenstern, in terms of the differences between the different NSAIDs, What does the evidence say out there, and what do you suggest to our listeners we use in terms of NSAIDs for different conditions? We can start with low back pain, but uh, uh, in general as well. Yeah, I think the rules apply to everybody. And before we jump into the harm side of things, you have to ask, are they all going to work? And I think it's very clear. There have been multiple studies. They all are equally effective. They're all going to decrease pain by about the same amount. The, the Cochrane Review agrees with that in terms of low, low back pain. They're, they're equally effective. So what we're really trying to sort out is, you know, are they going to differ in terms of side effect profile? 
And I guess the big category, as I say, is, is the COX-2 inhibitors. And they've been advertised pretty widely as having a lower rate of GI bleed in ulcers. And I, that seems like it's probably correct. But if you actually dig into the data, the absolute numbers are pretty small. And I think it could probably be addressed not necessarily by using the COX-2, but just by avoiding use in high-risk patients and using a short course of a PPI with the NSAID if, if, if necessary or something along those lines. You know, obviously, bleeding risk depends a lot on the patient, but overall, the absolute difference between the, the groups is pretty small. I, I think the best study I found was the Precision Trial. It's a big RCT published in the New England Journal in 2016. And this was all comers, every patient who had osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis, relatively old cohort. And these were patients using NSAIDs daily. And unlike our emergency department patients, they're taking them for a long time. So they're using NSAIDs every day for an average of more than 20 months. And they compared ibuprofen, naproxen, and celecoxib. And there was actually no difference at all in terms of major GI bleeds. So the stuff we actually care about, the, you know, the person coming in vomiting blood, it's exactly the same. 0.7% with celecoxib, 0.7% with naproxen, no difference. What gets reported is the difference in iron deficiency anemia thought to be from a GI source. So it's not a massive GI bleed. It's just a so slow bleed that nobody ever sees. And the difference was still tiny. It was 0.4% with silicoxib and 0.9% with naproxen. So half a percent over multiple years. And these are patients taking these drugs for, for 20 months, months at a time. And the trade-off for that lower rate of GI bleeding is, as mentioned, a higher rate of MI with the COX-2 inhibitors and a much higher cost. So personally, I still use either ibuprofen or naproxen for, for almost everything. There isn't a RCT data, but I agree the observational data seems to say naproxen had the lowest cardiovascular side effects and maybe ibuprofen lowest um, in, in GI. The big thing I think is like all the medications we're going to talk about, be careful to counsel about the side effects, should, uh, try to eliminate the highest risk patients and use the lowest possible dose for the shortest possible time. That brings up the idea of a dose ceiling. My understanding is that with ibuprofen, for example, 400 milligrams is the highest dose you ever want to give at once because uh, anything higher than that is just going to give you more side effects uh, without any more effectiveness in terms of uh, pain control. And I believe that's true for the rest of them. Yeah, they all should have a ceiling. It's hard to figure out, but we know Ketorolac now, 10, 10 milligrams if you're, absolutely, if you're using that IV or IM. Ibuprofen, 400. Naproxen is either 250 or 375. It, you know, there's nobody really doing these studies over the case, but in general, you just need a low dose of an NSAID. I would just add that ketorolac is really only of benefit because it can be given parenterally. And we should absolutely discourage people from using, prescribing it orally. All it does is cost people or the, the public more money and doesn't provide any more um, benefit than much cheaper things like ibuprofen or naproxen. And it does seem to be associated with much more harms than ibuprofen or, or naproxen in the few studies that are out there. So yeah, absolutely. If you're going oral naproxen or ibuprofen. Yeah. Use it. Use ketorolac for renal colic, possibly use it for biliary colic, and don't use it otherwise. <laughs> So that's a little bit about the different kinds of NSAIDs. One type of NSAID that we don't talk about often in emergency medicine is topical NSAIDs. 
So I want to shift our discussion a little bit from the PO and IV NSAIDs to topical NSAIDs, uh, and in particular in acute sprains and strains. So, you know, a guy comes in after rolling his ankle, he's got lots of swelling and pain, you apply the Ottawa ankle rules, he's got a sprain, and he wants to know what kind of pain medications he can take at home. Let's say he's got a history of a peptic ulcer, and let's say he's a heavy drinker, so you probably want to avoid oral NSAIDs, you probably want to avoid acetaminophen. Dr. Lexton, should we suggest to our patients with ankle sprains in addition to the usual rice, you know, restricted activity, ice, compression, and elevation, should we be uh, suggesting to them to pick up some NSAID cream on the way home from the ED to kind of smother on their sore ankle for a few days? Is that something that's uh, worth trying? I think it is, but not the creams. Actually, in the literature that's been, that's out there, that's been analyzed, the gels seem to be much more effective than the creams. That these are worthwhile. In fact, the um, the number needed to treat is pretty low. So, depending on which one you choose, you're running a number needed to treat between just under two to just under five. But you need to use the gels rather than the creams. I wouldn't use it in a very high risk GI bleed patient, but if somebody had a remote history of a GI bleed five or six years ago, and that was the reason that I didn't want to use uh, oral ibuprofen, uh, I think a short course of a topical for a few days is likely safe. Wow. So this is kind of a game changer for me. I mean, I've never even thought of prescribing a topical gel NSAID for someone with a bad ankle sprain. Uh, I mean, those numbers in terms of number needed to treat are really quite impressive, you know, between less than two and and less than five. I mean, those are better number needed to treats than almost any drug we use in the emergency department. So I think that's going to change my practice. Again, assuming that the patient hasn't just had a massive GI bleed or something, it sounds like it's it's a perfectly reasonable uh, option in addition to the usual ice and elevation and compression that, that we prescribe. <laughs> Before we leave NSAIDs, I did want to ask as well about rectal suppository NSAIDs. So, for example, you can give diclofenac rectally. I mean, let's say you've got a vomiting renal colic patient who's hard to get an IV on. There's something like a a rectal suppository NSAID, or let's say you're sending home a patient. Let's say you've got an 85-year-old with a remote history of peptic ulcer disease. They've got some painful condition. You want to avoid opioids. And you're thinking that you, you know, NSAIDs would be the best thing for them. Would a rectal suppository diclofenac, for example, be be an option in those patients? I think the place for considering rectal suppository NSAIDs is in the people with renal colic who you're sending home, and you've seen them when they come in; they're th- puking. If they get symptoms again when they're home, giving them a prescription for an an opioid to to try isn't going to be very much help if they're going to just throw it back up again. So people who have a lot of nausea and vomiting with renal colic, I think it's worth at least talking to patients to see whether or not they would be willing to consider an NSAID suppository. All right. So again, sort of a shared decision-making kind of thing, but I think it's something to keep in mind as a possibility when sending home patients with with renal colic. 
I want to get back to back pain for a minute. So we've talked about gabapentinoids. We've talked about NSAIDs and acetaminophen. What about cyclobenzaprine? So I sometimes actually see patients with chronic pain on permanent cyclobenzaprine on like crazy high doses. Sometimes I see eMERGE docs giving cyclobenzaprine along with whatever other analgesics. And I've always advised patients against it because it has horrible side effect profile. And I tell them that it claims to be a muscle relaxant, um, but in fact, it has nothing to do with relaxing your muscles. It's just relaxing your your brain. You know, it's a sedative, not an analgesic. Dr. Morgenstern, is there any good evidence out there for cyclobenzaprine for back strain, for example? Yeah, so I'll tell you, Anton, I, I'll admit I was guilty of prescribing this a, a fair amount early in my career, actually. I'd seen it used a lot. These patients were coming in at what seems like the end of their rope. You don't want to start them down an opioid pathway, so it seemed like a good option. At least it was something to help these patients get out of the emergency department, but I've completely stopped. Now, there are a fair number of studies of this drug, but they're all pretty high risk for bias, so I'm not sure that we can give you a definitive answer. One thing we know for sure is that there is harm. The number needed to harm is about four, with drowsiness and fatigue leading the list. The anti-muscarinic side effects are probably more concerning, things like urinary retention, constipation, falls, maybe even increased uh, dental infections from dry mouth. But because they're more rare, they aren't well captured in, in the studies that I read at least. There actually may be a small benefit when you try to read through these uh, trials, but as I said, all of them have uh, some significant risk of, of bias. If you're looking at back pain patients with a predominant symptom of spasm, you see a moderate improvement in pain with a number needed to treat maybe between about four and, and seven. I think, again, it's an overestimate because of, of bias. Maybe my biggest problem with reading through these trials is they tend to be older trials, and they were probably mostly done at a time when some of the major advice for back pain was multiple days of bed rest. And I'll tell you, cyclobenzaprine might help in that situation because it knocks you out. It's easy to lie in bed on cyclobenzaprine. But with the dizziness and, and drowsiness of these drugs, I think it's unlikely that you're going to be able to get your patient up and moving, let alone back to work earlier, which is really what we're trying to do with most of these patients these days. So my summary reading through this literature is that the number needed to treat and the number needed to harm are very close. And I think that is an overly optimistic view of the literature. So I don't use it at all right now. But, but I suppose there could be the rare occasional patient where it may be worth, worth a shot. I haven't found that patient. I, I think the other thing that becomes clear, just like I said with uh, gabapentin, is that if you're going to use it, the absolute lowest dose should be used. So they, they say five milligrams at night, and they don't see any benefit beyond 15 milligrams total in a day. All right. So I guess the bottom line with cyclobenzaprine is the significant side effects are enough the number needed to harm is as much as the number needed to treat. And that especially for low back pain, when you want to get people up and back to work, that's probably not a good idea to kind of knock them off their feet uh, with cyclobenzaprine. Let's talk about some other adjuncts to analgesics that might help for pain. And the one I want to talk about in particular is uh, caffeine. So Dr. Lexgen, does caffeine as an adjunct with an analgesic actually potentiate the analgesic effect of those medications? Should we be using caffeine with, say, ibuprofen or acetaminophen? So I was always a skeptic 
about caffeine. My understanding was that there was some quirk in the Canadian laws that meant that if you added caffeine to codeine, you didn't have to write a prescription, you could call it in. And I was under the impression that that's why the manufacturers had added caffeine to things like Tylenol 3s. I have to rethink that. And again, there's a Cochrane review from a couple of years ago that looked at this and did find a small but statistically significant benefit from using caffeine. Now, it didn't happen in all patients. It was only about 5 to 10% of patients who got an additional pain relief. So you're dealing with a number needed to treat of about 14 or 15. But you need to use 100 milligrams of caffeine to get that benefit. How about a, a couple uh, Starbucks coffees? I understand they're, uh, they've got quite a concentration of caffeine compared to Tim Hortons, at least. Uh, and I think that's sort of the point is we all have a fairly good experience with caffeine and 100 milligrams is about what you're going to get in a Vente coffee from Starbucks or, or a large coffee somewhere. So one dose is not that much. Uh, but if you start reading through these trials, there are a fair number of side effects, which I think makes sense. If you imagine drinking a Vente coffee or an extra large coffee every four hours with a pain pill uh, or taking two of those tablets at a time, uh, you're very going to quickly, quickly going to get into some jitters, some nausea, uh, a, a large number of side effects that might add up to being worse than, than your pain. So it, it's interesting. There definitely seems to be a role. Uh, but making it work practically might be a little bit more more difficult. All right. I guess if the patient comes in the morning to the emergency department, you can tell them to have a few cups of coffee during the day, but uh, then maybe their pain will get worse at night when they stop drinking coffee so that they can actually sleep. <laughs> and how many adults in uh, North America are not already having 100 milligrams of caffeine a day? So we might be struggling to find anyone to prescribe this to. Right. I guess the bottom line would be tell them if you're thinking of quitting drinking coffee, don't quit when you strain your low back. <laughs> All right. So that's uh, so caffeine, while the number needed to treat is 14, not too bad. The practicalities of it would probably negate using it for the majority of patients. The other drug uh, that's codeine related that I see used all the time is tramadol. And I see it used sort of as kind of a substitute for morphine um, in addition to acetaminophen or NSAIDs when acetaminophen and NSAIDs aren't working very well. And with tramadol, there's really there's two big questions. One is, is tramadol really any more effective than acetaminophen or NSAIDs? And then the second question is, is tramadol any better tolerated than morphine? So, you know, if you are going to step up from acetaminophen and NSAIDs, is it better to step up with morphine or is tramadol better tolerated than morphine? Dr. Morgenstern, what's your take? Yeah, so this is one of those really funny quirks about moving to New Zealand. Uh, one of the very first things that happened when I got here is uh, people told me, oh, you're going to love it here. We use almost no opioids at, at all. We don't have an opioid problem. And then it turns out essentially every single patient I see in the emergency department is on tramadol. Tramadol is just in the water here. Tramadol is everywhere. And I'll tell you, I think I can answer the question really easily. This is the strongest statement I can make about any of the medications that we're talking about today. I don't think that there is any role for tramadol in emergency medicine, prob probably at all. 
Uh, Tramadol is a messy drug. Tramadol in and of itself, the chemical is not an opioid agonist. It has to be metabolized in the liver through a series of the cytochrome P50 enzymes to become an opioid. But those P450 enzymes vary a lot from person to person. So it's a lot like codeine in, in this respect. And so you will get a subset of the population who gets zero pain relief at all from this drug because they don't have the right enzymes. So you're prescribing a drug to control somebody's pain and they will get no pain relief. On the other hand, exactly like codeine, there will be ultra or rapid metabolizers who get very high levels, peak levels, and they'll get euphoria from these drugs. And there have been reported bad outcomes, reported respiratory depression, even at normal levels. But I think tramadol is even worse than codeine because the part that isn't metabolized to an opioid acts as an SNRI, so a serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. So this is a messy uh, drug, and that explains why there's so many extra side effects that come with it. It's been tied to seizures and hypoglycemia, serotonin syndrome, hyponatremia, and because it still activates the opioid receptors, or at least in the percentage of the population that actually has the right liver enzymes, because of that, despite all the marketing, this is still an opioid. And it still has all the problems with dependence and abuse that all of our other opioids have. This isn't incredibly well documented in the medical literature, but you just have to go to, to the normal newspapers to see that this is abused all the way around the world. There are areas of the world, Africa and the Middle East, uh, some parts of Asia, where tremadol is the leading drug of abuse. It is addictive. It is dependent just like other uh, opioids. So for me, that, that's pretty simple, right? The pharmacology just tells me that nobody should be using these drugs. Then you can actually even go further. You can look at some evidence and, and there's a number of, of RCTs. And if you look at tramadol as compared to ibuprofen, every single trial that has compared tramadol to ibuprofen it provides no more pain relief than a 400 milligram dose of, of ibuprofen, but you add all these complications. It just doesn't make sense to me. If you want to prescribe an opioid, if the patient's in pain, use morphine. I see no rule for this drug. I agree. Tell us what you really think, Justin. <laughs> 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 all right. Yeah, I, I agree too. I think the door is closed on on tramadol. Actually, I just interviewed uh, David Yearling, who's going to be doing a series on uh, drug interactions for the EM Quick Hits podcast um, on, EMK, on EM cases. So I won't give it away now, but he's going to be talking about a particular drug interaction with codeine and tramadol uh, that we should be aware about. If we're not using codeine and tramadol at all ever, then we don't have to worry about this drug interaction. But for those of you who still aren't convinced and who are going to keep on using codeine or tramadol, you might be convinced not to use it at all uh, after you hear the, the Quick Hit podcast with uh, David Yearling. I want to move on now to a different kind of pain and away from analgesics um, and talk about pharyngitis. So we know antibiotics are rarely required for adults with pharyngitis, but of course, uh, we'd like to manage the patient's pain. Um, and I understand that there's some pretty good evidence out there that a dose of dexamethasone can improve pain and symptom resolution. Um, my practice is to give a single dose of dexamethasone for adults with pharyngitis who have moderate to severe pain. Justin, can you review the literature for us on steroids for pharyngitis and tell us which patients with pharyngitis should be considered for steroids? Yeah. So steroids for pharyngitis is one of those topics where I think that idea that I was talking about at the beginning between the balance between harms and benefits and understanding the patient's baseline risk is really important because steroids definitely relieve pain, but 
There are also a lot of harms from steroids. These are not our safest class of, of drugs, despite how often we use them. So if we start using them in lower and lower risk patients, then we're going to see the harms become bigger than the benefits. So if you look at, there's a Cochrane review in 2012, where there's a big meta-analysis in the BMJ in 2017. The results are basically the same. Uh, at this point, there are 10 RCTs out there, about 1,400 patients, uh, so no, no huge trials. Um one quirk is that all of these trials gave all of the patients antibiotics, which I'm not sure is necessary, but that's a, a different story altogether. In these trials, they gave a single dose of dexamethasone up to about 10 milligrams. And the best description is that you're about twice as likely to be pain-free at 24 hours, maybe 50% more likely to be pain-free at 48 hours. Statistically speaking, all the other outcomes, things like time off work, recurrence, antibiotic use, uh, they weren't statistically uh, different, but the point estimates were all on the sides of steroids being better and the trials weren't powered for those, uh, those outcomes. Now, I'll say the meta-analysis found no harm. But that's not believable. We know steroids have a lot of harm. And I think this is a really good example of the fact that small RCTs can really underestimate harms. And, and some of the harms with steroids can be pretty severe, a lot worse than you know just a few days with a slightly sore uh, throat. So steroids work, but we have to be careful. So in my, in my mind, you have to have already tried NSAIDs and Tylenol, and the pain still has to be pretty severe. What exactly that cutoff is, isn't clear. But if I think it's severe enough to warrant a steroid, then I'll discuss the side effects with my patient and let them decide. Uh, so I definitely use this in my practice, but not routinely. All right. Yeah. I always wondered, you know, the probably thousands of times that I've given steroids in the emergency department for a variety of things, whether it's asthma or a sore throat or what have you, I wonder what the rate of, you know, avascular necrosis of the hip, which is a pretty serious side effect, which you, you know, you read about in the textbooks and in medical school. And, you know, you'll see one case in your career. Dr. Lection, do you have any sense of uh, the rate of, of really bad side effects with steroids? Unfortunately, I don't. And, you know, I might be a little more reckless than Justin, but a single injection of dexamethasone or a single oral dose of steroids, in my view at least, is relatively low on the risk of causing side effects. That's completely different than people who with asthma who are steroid dependent or people with rheumatoid arthritis. So I might be a little more liberal than, than Justin in using steroids for severe sore throats, but I certainly agree with him that even if the side effects of steroids are, in my view, low, that there are other things that have even lower risks or no risks. So drinking lots of water, sucking on candies, that kind of stuff is would be where I would go first. All right. So fair, fair enough to say then that the patient who comes in with severe pain, who's tried acetaminophen and lozenges um, and is really at their wit's end, uh, but you don't want to be going to opioids necessarily, that dexamethasone one dose is probably generally safe, although there may be some side effects that just aren't represented in the trials because they're too small. And uh, again, it would be a, a conversation with the patient to see whether you'd go ahead with a dexamethasone or not.
let's move from an orifice at one end of the body to the orifice at the other end of the body and talk about rectal pain from anal fissures and hemorrhoids, which is actually quite common in my emergency department and is almost always very distressing for patients. I got to say that I see so many patients failing all kinds of over-the-counter creams and ointments uh, like Anusol and Preparation H. They contain a variety of things like hydrocortisone and zinc sulfate. Uh, some have lidocaine. Some have phenylephrine. My understanding is that there is little, if any, evidence that any of these creams and ointments work. The question is, what topical medications do work for anal fissures and hemorrhoid pain? Dr. Lexton? So I'm a sufferer. I have hemorrhoids. And I can certainly agree with you that there is lots of junk out there that doesn't work. An N of one, but fair enough. <laughs> if you've got hemorrhoids, really the best treatment for them is excision. But that's not really practical in the emergency department. What does seem to provide some benefit are either topical calcium channel blockers or topical nitroglycerin. The evidence is that they are pretty good at healing both anal fissures and relieving pain from, from hemorrhoids. Certainly, I would use those in preference to trying to incise a thrombosed hemorrhoid. I've done that a few times. I didn't like it. The patient certainly didn't like it. But you'd also have to be aware that both of these things drop blood pressure. So if people are already on an antihypertensive, they may get um, dizzy, especially when they change posture. The topical um, nitroglycerin may give you headaches. But taking all that into consideration, I would say go for it. Be sure before you prescribe it, probably call up the pharmacy and make sure that they're able to compound it. If you're going to use diltiazem, there is liquid diltiazem. Um, if you're going to use nifedipine, they can crush up a tablet, but just be sure that, that they're going to be able to do that. Yeah, I've, I've prescribed nifedipine 0.3% uh, BID for three weeks for lots of patients, uh, nifedipine ointment. And the pharmacist seems to not have a problem with it. So, of course, a patient who's already hypotensive, you don't want to be giving them this, or who's on a whole slew of antihypertensives and their blood pressure is very well controlled, you might want to think twice about giving these. But the evidence does seem relatively clear that uh, they're the best choices. What about if you compare nitroglycerin to the calcium channel blockers, diltiazem or nifedipine? My understanding is that their efficacy is about the same, but that nitroglycerin actually has more side effects like headaches, for example. I think that's probably true, especially when it comes to the, um, the headaches. So I would go for the calcium channel blockers. I came across another class of medications called the flavonoids that apparently have incredibly good uh, evidence for them and aren't used at all in uh, North America. I'm not sure if either of you have ever heard of, heard of these. But apparently, they are used widely enough that in Europe, 
they make up five of the top 50 prescribed drugs in, in Europe. Uh, and these are oral agents that are supposed to be venotonic. Uh, so, that, so they cause some uh, venous constriction. They, they're also used in uh, chronic venous insufficiency of the legs. And you know, I, I found this, and at first I was incredibly skeptical because most of these products are actually marketed as herbals or, or plant extracts, and they have a very poor track record. But as I started reading some evidence for this, there are a number of trials. And if you look at overall global improvement for people with hemorrhoids, they improve outcomes by 60%, or if you want to stick to absolute numbers, 33%. That's an, a, a number needed to treat of three. And the numbers needed to treat are basically the same for everything. A number needed to treat about three or four for, for bleeding, for itch, for recurrence, for pain. Uh, so there's a Cochrane review. It has about 2,000 page, patients in it. It includes uh, no increase in adverse events, which you know I think is probably unlikely. It's probably not seeing some, but the magnitude of benefit here is so large. I think these are a class of agents that I'm going to have to uh, start incorporating into my practice. But the honest truth is I had never seen them before. Never used it. But you know what? I'm going to stop the podcast right now and run out and buy some. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Justin, maybe we'll do uh, an EM quick hit on it once we find out a little bit more about it. So these are flavonoids. What are the actual particular names of the, the drugs? You're either going to get something called diosmin or micronized purified flavonoid fraction. Those are the two uh, big ones. In Canada, I, I see a brand name of Venixa or Hemoval. The big problem seems to be in most countries, they are still marketed as, as plant extracts, which means they don't go through at all the same kind of uh, rigor or product testing that other, other medications do. So you may not be getting the same efficacy that they see in the, in the Cochrane Review. But as I say, I, I'm going to explore this a little bit further. It's quite, quite interesting. All right. Well, definitely get back to us when you find out more. The last medication that we use for painful conditions that I want to talk about is buscopan for colicky abdominal pain. And I've seen buscopan used in emergency departments for years and years and years. I haven't used it at all in years. Is there any role at all for buscopan for patients, let's say, with abdominal pain who you've ruled out some serious surgical cause in? I'll, I'll tell you, Anton, uh, more than anything else, I'm mostly struck by the complete absence of evidence considering how common it is used in, in some places. I spent a, a long time looking and found almost nothing of value. Uh, there is a best bet review from 2003 looking at patients with general abdominal pain, and all they could say was, we did not find any studies uh, of relevance. Uh, there's another best bet review in 2005 that really just focused in on biliary colic. And they did find a few trials and they found that buscopan is less effective than simple analgesics than like NSAIDs. There are a couple other really small, really poorly designed trials in things like uh, irritable bowel syndrome. And if you compare buscopan to placebo, there does look like there's a small benefit. But if you compare buscopan to any analgesic at all, acetaminophen, ibuprofen, then it looks like buscopan doesn't uh, work. Now, in terms of harms, anticholinergics are a class of drugs that always concern me. Uh, maybe the only good thing that you can say about buscopan is that it's really not absorbed at all. So most of these trials report minimal harms, although they are small, uh, small trials. So my bottom line is, I, I think we can say mostly we have no idea, but I think the best evidence is that buscopan does almost nothing less than a Tylenol or an ibuprofen. I will throw the one caveat on the end is that while I was searching, I found a high quality RCT that had just finished. Uh, it was done at the pediatric hospital in London, Ontario, but the results haven't been published yet. But I reached out to the author and I was just warned, 
you know, I can't tell you the results, but don't be too negative about Buscapan yet. So I think that's going to, trial is going to be released at Cape later this year. So we'll, maybe we'll have some better evidence uh, in a six months time. So the study Justin's referring to just came out in CGEM in May 2019. It compared Buscapan plus placebo to acetaminophen plus placebo in 225 kids with functional abdominal pain. It showed that there was no statistical difference between the groups in pain scores, caregiver satisfaction, length of stay, or side effects, but both were moderately effective for pain. Bottom line is acetaminophen is probably just as effective as buscopan in both adults and kids, so we should probably just stick to acetaminophen in most patients. I suppose if a patient has severe liver failure or some other contraindication to acetaminophen, buscopan might be an option, but in the very rare patient. Before we leave pain altogether, I want to talk briefly, we could go into a huge discussion about this, and maybe we will in a future Journal Jam podcast, on hydromorphone versus morphine. There's some emergency doctors who are in sort of the hydromorphone camp, and some emergency doctors who are in the morphine camp who use either one of those almost exclusively, and they claim that hydromorphone is better then morphine, that it's more effective at pain control. And then the morphine camp will argue that morphine is a cleaner drug with less psychotropic effects and maybe less addiction potential. What's the bottom line when it comes to hydromorphone versus morphine for patients in the emergency department? Which one actually works better? So I can try to tackle it first, I guess. I, I, there's not that many head-to-head trials of opioids, but I think it's really clear from all the trials that in terms of pain control, all the opioids work exactly the same. You just As long as you find the equal analgesic dose, you're going to get the same level of, uh, of pain control. So what we're really worried about is, is going to be side effects. I tend to stick with morphine for two reasons. Morphine is less euphoric. Now, this isn't, I can't tell you that from any trials, but I'll tell you, people don't want it. It does not have a street value. Uh, so why would I use a drug that does have a street value that can be diverted or, or abused? Uh, and the second reason I worry a little bit about hydromorphone is that I've been uh, part of a couple hospital safety audits and that have looked at adverse events after opioids. And essentially, every adverse event that happens in a hospital that is related to an opioid is always hydromorphone. It's always dilated. And that might just be because we're using hydromorph more often. But I've read a couple of root cause analyses of these events. And for some reason, people see giving one milligram of hydromorph as no big deal, but giving five of morphine seems like a lot, even though one of hydromorph is more than five of morphine. And so as a result, it seems like overdoses are a little bit more common. So that was my logic for sticking with morphine. I I think if you base it just on the trials, I think morphine and hydromorphone are probably equivalent and they're they're probably about as safe but I didn't actually answer your question because I think what we're really worried about is the reason some people get veered way off is the idea of renal failure or the elderly patients. And as far as I can tell, we don't have great evidence at all. Nobody's ever taken a, patient, a group of patients with renal failure and randomized them to either morphine or hydromorphone. So we're basing everything on uh, pharmacokinetics and, and, and case reports. But I think there's one really important thing to know about is that both of these drugs are metabolized in the liver. And then those metabolites are eliminated through the kidney. So in renal failure, neither is safe. 
The difference is just what metabolites are, are formed. So with morphine, you get metabolites that are also active at the opioid receptors. So if you give a patient multiple doses, you can build up these metabolites, and then you can have some opioid-like side effects. So you can get sedation and respiratory depression, although you also get some analgesia. So essentially, renal failure turns short-acting morphine into long-acting morphine. With hydromorphone, you also get buildup in renal failure, but the metabolites aren't opioids. They're actually neuroexcitatory, which means you get you see things like delirium and agitation, myoclonus, and maybe hallucinations, and, and even worse, you don't actually get any pain relief anymore. Uh, so actually, from because of that, from an emergency department perspective, I think morphine is the better option. If you happen to give somebody who has renal failure some morphine, all that's going to happen is it's going to stick around longer. They're going to get longer pain control. Now, you could run into problems when you give it multiple doses over multiple days, but switching to Dilata doesn't actually solve that problem. You also run into to, to problems uh, there. And that fits with most guidelines that I say. Most guidelines say that if you get below an EGFR of 30, you know, Opioids in general should be avoided. Maybe fentanyl or buprenorphine is your is your choice. But in terms of, if I read the European Association for Palliative Care, if I read palliative care guidelines, they say even in real therapy, morphine is still an option, but just lower your dose and use longer dosing intervals. Uh, so a couple doses in, in the emergency department, I don't think is anything to be worried about. Yeah, I think the the key thing with morphine versus hydromorphone. I also am more in the morphine camp, and I think it's a practical thing. I totally agree that based on the literature, if you have equivalent dosing, then the analgesic effect is the same. But what I see practically happening out there is that people will give one milligram of dilaudid, which for the average adult is the correct dose. Uh, but when it comes to morphine, the correct dose is 0.1 milligrams per kilogram. So the the correct dose for the average adult is seven milligrams. For the 100 kilogram guy, it's 10 milligrams. And I see all the time morphine given, you know, three or four milligrams at a time, whereas dilaudid is given one milligram at a time. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of physicians out there that think that dilaudid is a better analgesic simply because when they use morphine, they're underdosing it. Um, so I think that's something to to be aware of that the 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 proper acute dose of IV morphine is zero point one milligrams per kilogram. Uh, Doctor Lexton, your take on morphine versus hydromorphone? I'm in general a morphine user, well, or prescriber, not <laughs> user. Oh, we can we can direct you to some help for that, Joel. <laughs> Thank you, and. At least in the Canadian context, the other thing that I'd want to say is that there is a difference in price. So if you get a 10 milligram vial of morphine in Ontario, you're paying $2.39, whereas the same 10 milligram per ml of hydromorphone is $4.35. So there's about a 75% difference in price. Um, so if they're equal in terms of their analgesic properties and equal in terms of their side effects, go for the cheaper product. It's a good reason. Yeah, I, I actually had no idea about the difference in price there. That's definitely good to know. And we use a lot of IV opioids in the emergency department across the country, across the world. So there we go. We could be saving millions of dollars 
just by using morphine instead of hydromorphone. So that's our potpourri of painful conditions. Let's just kind of wrap it up and go through all of them again. And uh, let's just try and give a yes, no, or maybe. So guys, how about uh, gabapentin for low back pain and sciatica? Mostly no. No. All right. Uh, Mostly no. Maybe for the rare patient with neuropathic pain. Uh, Oral NSAIDs for low back pain. Yes for me. Yes for me. Yeah, yes for me too. All right. Topical NSAIDs for sprains and strains. Yes. Another yes. Uh, Yeah, and me too. Uh, And cyclobenzaprine for sprains and strains. I'm going to say no caveated by we don't really know. I'm going to say no, and I don't think there's ever going to be anybody who's going to produce any studies that are going to give a definitive answer. But in the absence of that, no. I'm basically a no for cyclobenzaprine as well, um, with the caveat, again, that we don't really know. Um, How about caffeine as an adjunct to NSAIDs and acetaminophen? Yeah, maybe. If you're going to stay up all night studying for an exam, go for it. (laughs) All right. So only for uh, university students. And nifedipine or diltiazem for hemorrhoids and anal fissures? It's a yes. Yes. So a yes for calcium channel blockers for rectal pain. How about uh, tramadol instead of morphine? Yeah, that one's a 100% definitive no. Never. (laughs) A very loud no from Justin. All right. And then how about buscopan for belly pain? Uh, No for now. For adults, no. And then lastly, uh, the last drug we talked about in terms of the potpourri of uh, medications for a potpourri of painful conditions is steroids for sore throat. Justin? Yes, but just be cautious of overuse. I agree with Justin. I'm surprised that we're mostly in agreement um, about all of these things. I was uh, I was worried that perhaps we wouldn't be able to come to any conclusions uh, because the data is really quite complex and extensive on on all of these things. But I'm glad to say that we've come to some conclusions in terms of the listeners out there. Uh, we're happy to hear your opinions. Hopefully, this has at least made you reflect a little bit on your prescribing practices when it comes to painful conditions in the emergency department. That wraps up part one of this podcast. In part two, we're going to be talking about uh, nausea. We're going to be talking about vertigo. And we're going to be talking about a whole slew of other common ailments that we see in the emergency department and figure out, based on the current literature, whether the drugs for these medications that we so commonly use actually work or don't work. Oh yeah, and don't forget to check out the new Quiz Vault. 